Well, happy Wednesday, everybody. I am so thankful you're able to be here with us tonight. We uh, continue our series, Miracles and Meaning. Tonight, we're going to talk about one of my favorite miracles in all of the book of John called the feeding of the multitudes. Now, there are a couple of different times that Jesus feeds the multitudes. At one time, he feeds 4,000. This time, in particular, we're going to focus on Jesus is feeding 5,000 men. Now, we have described miracles. Um, you can describe miracles in a lot of different ways, but the way that we have done it is that we have described it as when the supernatural God breaks in to the natural into time and space, and he does something in the natural that is supernatural. That is how we have defined a miracle over these past few weeks. C.S. Lewis made a quote about miracles. He said this, he said, miracles are the retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. What C.S. Lewis was saying is he was saying, look, when you see a modern day miracle, it is really just a microcosm of the bigger miracle of all of creation. That somehow, even though it stands directly before us, somehow we miss that there are a hundred billion galaxies in the known universe, that within those galaxies, there are billions of stars within. Uh, we somehow miss all of this stuff, even though it stands before us, the sun rising day in and day out is a miracle. Somehow we miss those grand miracles, but somehow these small miracles gain our attention. And so God uses the big and he uses the small. But what's fascinating about it all is that it all works together and ultimately it all points to God himself. As we've been in the book of John over the past few weeks, we've been talking about uh, the miracles. The word that John uses for the word miracle is really interpreted signs. And so what John is saying is that Jesus performed this sign and that sign pointed to the fact that Jesus is God. It pointed to the fact that he would be the Messiah that all of the world had been waiting for uh, since its existence. And so what we've realized is that as we go through each of these uh, different miracles in the book of John, that they all absolutely point to the fact that Jesus is God, that he is the Messiah to come. But it also, what we've realized is that although it points to the fact that Jesus is God, that there may be other meanings behind those miracles. And so for each miracle, we've kind of unpacked all the different meanings that some of these miracles have. And tonight we're going to be reading uh, in the book of John, chapter 6, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be reading about a moment when Jesus feeds the multitudes. Now, when we left off last week, uh, we were in John chapter 5. Jesus had just been in Jerusalem and he had healed a lame man at the pool of Bethesda. Well, at the beginning of John, um, a, a good long while has, has passed. And what we can gather from the text that we have between John 5 and John 6 is that about a year of time has passed um, between John 5 and 6. And so here we pick up, Jesus is no longer in Jerusalem. Jesus is now back at Galilee. And this is what the scripture says beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because of the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? But Jesus said this to test Philip, for he himself knew what Philip would do. And so Philip answered Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get even a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many people? And Jesus said to them, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. 
Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when he had, excuse me, when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to to come and to take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Father, we love you tonight and are so grateful for the word of the Lord. I am just so excited to be able to share from uh, this event that happened and um, just want to really pray that the spirit of the Lord and the spirit of revelation would come and speak to all of our hearts tonight. Uh, Lord, speak what only you know how to speak to us and speak in a way that we will have ears to hear. Show us things that we otherwise may not see, but we pray that you would reveal them by your spirit. So God, please bless your people. I thank you for them and I bless them in the name of Jesus. Amen, amen, and amen. I don't know about you, but when I was in high school, there were certain subjects that I would excel in, and then there were certain subjects that, uh, well, let's just say I didn't do so well in. Um, Algebra, or really any type of math for that matter, algebra was really a thorn in my flesh all through high school. As a matter of fact, um, when I was in high school for four years, I failed algebra two times in four years. Algebra one. I failed algebra one two times in four years. I was so bad with math, with numbers, that instead, usually the track goes, they'll, they'll take you from algebra one to geometry to algebra two. But I was so bad that on the third time when I finally barely passed algebra one, that they skipped me over geometry and just put me in algebra two because they were like, there's no way this kid can pass geometry. And so they did. And thankfully, um, I could succeed. Listen, I'm not, I'm not awful with numbers. I know the basic rudimentary things with numbers, but when you start adding symbols and numbers and all that kind of stuff, it's ridiculous. It's not even, at that point, it's not even math, okay? It's a different language, and uh, it was super frustrating for me um, all through school. As a matter of fact, when I was finishing my undergrad, the only thing, and I did this intentionally, the only thing standing between me and graduation was one math class. It was literally the only class standing between me and graduation, but I had saved it for last because I almost viewed it as, you know, the the carrot dangling out before me. Graduation, if I can just get through with this, then I can finally graduate. And uh, I literally, I I struggled so bad, even with that class, I had to hire a tutor um, and she came to my house and... Um, you know, for, for eight weeks and we paid her good money so that I could eventually pass that class. And I did, you had to have a 70 or better to pass and I passed with a 72. So I was super thankful, able to get my undergrad and everything. But the point is, is that math has never been a thing for me that I, it just never has come natural for me. For whatever reason, my son Easton is a math wizard and number, he just thinks in numbers. And I'm so thankful for that because I lack that. But what's interesting is that when you look all throughout scripture, what you find is that kingdom math or the way that God does math is not the same way that we do math. There are a lot of differences. I don't mean that to say that God does not, God is not orderly or that God does not use scientific measurements or anything like that. That is not what I mean when I say that. I simply mean that God can oftentimes use less to accomplish more. And sometimes, even in different scenarios, math doesn't always add up in the way that we would like. And then sometimes it absolutely adds up in the way that we would like. Like, for instance, in the Gospels, Jesus, he talks about a worker who had worked for 12 hours, and then all of a sudden, a person comes in and he only works for one hour. But the manager of the field, he goes and he pays them both equally. It's the difference between our type of math and kingdom math. 
You see Jesus as he is sitting at the temple and uh, all these people go and they're wealthy and they're giving in the offering bucket and they're giving all this multitude of money and coins. And then all of a sudden he sees this little lady just kind of walk real slowly, a widow. And she goes with her two little pennies, her two little mites. And she goes and drops them in. And Jesus looks at this situation and he says, what you see when you see the multitudes giving in multitude, you see a lot. But I see more when I see this widow giving all that she has. And it's because kingdom math doesn't add up to our math. It's like Gideon. You remember in the book of Judges, Gideon, he goes and uh, he has an army of 32,000 soldiers. 32,000 soldiers. And the Lord comes to Gideon and he says, listen, you've got 32,000 but that's too many soldiers. And you would think, you would think, how can, a, how can an army have too many soldiers? But in the kingdom of heaven, math just works differently. And so Gideon says, Lord, uh, I'll talk to him. And so he talks to him and 22,000 of the soldiers left. He was left with 10,000. The Lord comes back to Gideon and he says, Gideon, you still got too many. And the Lord weeds Gideon's army from 32,000 to 300 men. And the moral of the story of what I'm trying to get across is that God was able to do more with the 300 committed faithful men than he was able to do with the 32,000 men. And the reality is simply this, is that when we dedicate things to the Lord, he can oftentimes do more with less when it's given into his hands. And so tonight what we want to do is I just want to kind of break down for you um, five or six different um, revelations that we learn about the Lord and his character as we break down this miracle of the feeding of the multitude. And so number one is simply this, and this is um, a very obvious statement, and we've talked about it every single week, but I just feel it necessary to reiterate the fact that this miracle reveals that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, as we said, every one of these miracles are a sign that points to his Messiahship. We said that about every single miracle. But in this particular miracle, later the same day, you can read further um, in John chapter six, later the same day, Jesus confronts the disciples and when he confronts them, he tells them, he says, there are people that follow me because I did the miracle, but what they're missing is the meaning behind the miracle. It's not just about the bread. It's about the fact that I am the bread of life. And this is where Jesus goes into this teaching about himself being the bread of life. And so for the sake of redundancy, I still think it's important that we remember that every single one of these miracles indeed revealed that Jesus is the Messiah. Number two, what this miracle reveals is that Jesus is fully aware of our needs. In Matthew chapter six, Jesus, as he was talking about prayer and how we should go before the Father, he makes a statement about the Pharisees and he says, these Pharisees, they go and they just ramble and they just kind of talk about anything and everything and they love to be known for their long prayers. But Jesus makes this statement. He says, but your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. And so what we see in, in this moment is we see thousands, you know, 5,000 men come and they're all together. They're all following Jesus. And Jesus looks out. He's in the mode of teaching and discipling and preaching the kingdom. Uh, he is living in a place where the bread of this earth is not the bread that he partakes of. He, he, you know, he lives off doing the will of the Father. But even in this mode, Jesus looks out and he sees the need of thousands and thousands of people. And I think in a day like our day, when there are so many problems that are so prevalent on a, on a global level, on a national level, but even on individual levels, there are so many needs that are so pressing in so many people's lives that I think it's easy for so many people just to feel like God has bigger fish to fry, no pun intended, that, that, God has, that God has more important things to deal with 
that I shouldn't just bring my stuff to God that's really of no consequence for anybody else. I, I want us to be reminded tonight that God absolutely not only knows your individual specific need, but God cares for your individual specific need, and God wants to meet your individual specific need. I remember a few years ago, I was um, going through a season of my life where I was just really struggling emotionally. And it wasn't anything anyone had done. It was just one of those seasons for me um, uh, in ministry where I was just super low. I didn't, you know, I was struggling to know if God had called me. I felt like things weren't working out the way that I thought that they would work out. And I was just feeling, you know, low self-esteem, a little bit of depression, a whole lot of frustration. And I remember, you know, just, just crying up to the Lord and I would journal and all these different things. And um, I remember specifically one day I was in a hotel room. Um, I, was, I was doing um, a project at, at, at a school up in Virginia. And I remember I was sitting there and I had a lot of reading to do. And so I had a lot of books there um, at the hotel. And uh, I, I grabbed one of the books and um, I was flipping to a particular page number um, so I could pick up my reading and different things like that. And I accidentally overshot where I was supposed to go. But where my thumb landed, it landed on the first page of chapter 10. And at the very top of the first page of chapter 10, the verses written in Isaiah 41, verse 9, where the Lord says this. He says, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. Now, let me, let me be very clear when I say this. I do not think that when we are looking for answers from the Lord that we should kind of flip open our Bible and say, show me. Um, I don't think, I think that is a dangerous practice. I don't think that we should do that with books or the Bible or anything like that. But I will say that there are times where God specifically uses moments in our lives to speak to our hearts about very pressing needs in our lives through instances like that. God can do anything he wants. He can, he can you know, control the, the flip of the page. And he, I believe that by his spirit, he caused me to land there to edify me and to meet the need that I had, not the need that any human could have voiced to me that I was not rejected, but I was, I was chosen. But for my father in heaven to say that is, is a totally different animal. And so, although I don't think we should practice that type of thing, God used that in my life. And I think God can use that in any of our lives. And God can use a lot of different means in order to meet the needs in our lives so that he can remind us how deeply he loves us and cares for our needs. Now, I think it's important that we understand that God does not idolize us. I think that um, imbalanced in teaching teaches that, um, you know, people are really the, the only reason that Jesus came, and, and that's just not true. Jesus said that he came for the glory of the Father. Um, I think that if we're not careful, we can start teaching this thing that, that really God is God, but he worships us as God. Like, he kind of idolizes us, and, and we are all that's, you know, really important in life, and so God beckons to us. I, I think we got to be real careful of that. But I will tell you this, out of all that God has created, he doesn't idolize us, but he does prioritize us. We are the apple of his eye. We are the height of creation. And as his children, just like any mama, any papa, when they see their children, they prioritize them. They care for them. They express their love to them. Jesus said this in Matthew 10. He was talking about the, the value of all creation. And he said, what is the price of two sparrows, a copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered, so don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. And so this miracle reminds us that Jesus is fully aware of our needs and he cares for us enough to give attention to those needs. Number three, the miracle reminds us that Jesus deals with us on an individual basis. Now, 
what we see in this text here is we see Jesus testing one of the disciples named Philip. Now, we don't see Jesus speaking directly to Philip a whole lot, so it can kind of almost seem out of place. Like, why would Jesus choose in that moment to speak to Philip when there are 11 other apostles around? As a matter of fact, usually when Jesus is talking, he's usually talking to Peter, James, or John. But in this instance, he speaks to Philip, and there are all kind of, you know, um, they're all kind of guesses from scholars and commentators and all these kind of things. Some people say, well, you know, it was probably because Philip grew up in that area and, you know, he knew where the best grocery store stores were. So that's why Jesus looked and said, where are we going to get all the, you know, enough food? And, um, you know, Philip knew the best place to go, who would have the best prices. Um, there are some people that think that, that Philip, that out of all the 12 uh, disciples that you know, there was a group of four. There was Peter, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And Peter was like the spokesperson for that first group. But in the second group, um, Philip was kind of the leader out of that second group of disciples. Um, there are all kinds of theories. But in, in the scripture, what the scripture says is that Jesus asked Philip so that he could test Philip. I mean, the answer was right there in the text. And so... As Jesus asked Philip his opinion, it's really interesting what Philip's reply was. Now, we see Philip a few other times in Scripture. And what it comes across, personality-wise, the way that Philip kind of comes across, he almost comes across as a guy who is um, really into detail. It's almost like he's analytical. And so, um, you know, Philip looks out, Jesus says, where are we going to do this? How are we going to feed all these people to test Philip? And then Philip looks out and he sees all these thousands and thousands of people. And, and Philip starts like doing the math, right? He's like my son, Easton. He's just brilliant. He's adding all this stuff. And he says, Lord, even if we had 200 denarii, it wouldn't, it wouldn't cover all of these people. Now, a denarii in, in Roman times, that was, you know, one denarii was the equivalent of one day's work. In some places, two days' work. And so what Philip was saying, he was saying, Lord, even if we had a person that worked for 200 days out of the year and they saved every single denarii they had, it still wouldn't be enough to feed all of these people. And so Jesus tested Philip's faith in that moment. Now, you say, well, you know, the Lord doesn't, doesn't test people in that way. No, that's not true at all. We see the Lord testing people all throughout scriptures. What the Lord does not do is he does not tempt people. There's a difference between tempting and testing. Um, James, the half-brother of Jesus, he would say that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone for evil. But then in other por portions of Scripture, um, I'll never forget the very first time I read Genesis uh, chapter 22, verse 1. The Bible just, just in one sentence, it says, God tested Abraham. And it was so shocking to me because I thought, why, what do you mean God tested Abraham? But when I really began to uncover, I began to understand there's a very vast difference between being tempted to do evil and being tested to see if you're going to grow in your faith. And sadly enough, it seems that for Philip, it seems that he failed the test. What Philip should have done is he should have acknowledged the problem, right? He should have said, Lord, there's so many people, even if we had all of this money, you know, there's no way that we could feed all these people. He should have acknowledged the problem. But on the heels of that, he should have acknowledged the Lord. He should have said, Father, this is our problem. But, oh, Lord, only you know how to do this. And I believe that you can meet this need and that you will meet this need. So show me how you're going to do it. That would have been a response that was filled with faith. But sadly enough, Philip only acknowledged the problem. Now, I think it's important for, for all of us to understand that when we talk about a person having faith, like faith for the Lord to meet the need, it doesn't mean that we dismiss the facts of the situation, right? So Philip, he shouldn't have said, Lord, there's no problem. You can do all things. 
No, he shouldn't have said that. He should have said, Lord, there's a massive problem, but Lord, you can do all things. And I think it's, I think it's, um, it, it's, it's dangerous for us to go down a road where we begin to deny reality, even when it's problems in the natural. I think it's dangerous for us to deny reality and say, no, I'm, you know, I'm not going to, you know, acknowledge, you know, that diagnosis or anything like that. I understand the heart behind that of not wanting to partner with, with the diagnosis. And, and I agree with that. I don't want to partner with any diagnosis either. But to get a diagnosis, it's one thing to partner with it, but it's another thing to say, Father, this is what the doctors are saying. But God, I know you can step in and perform a miracle. That is a big difference between denying that problems exist and acknowledging that problems exist, but realizing that God is superior to all of our problems. And so in this, Philip just kind of failed the test, unfortunately. And so what happens next is that all of a sudden, once the conversation with Philip is kind of over, all of a sudden, Andrew steps in and he kind of interrupts the conversation. And when he steps in, then Jesus begins to test Andrew. Andrew living up to his reputation. You remember he is the one that um, he brought his brother Simon Peter. He goes to Simon Peter and he says, we found the Messiah. And then he brings Peter to Jesus. And then he begins to follow Jesus. Um, Living up to his reputation, um, Andrew brings this little boy to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, here's this little boy. You know, I, I see the problem, but here's this little boy. And, and here is what he has to offer. And what it seems is that Andrew passed the test. Now, it's important to realize this, that when you read the text, when Andrew, he, he does bring the situation, he sees the problem, he acknowledges there's an issue. And then he says, and Lord, here's like, part of a solution maybe, but even this isn't really going to be good enough. But here's the difference. Andrew looked and all he saw was the problem. Excuse me. Philip looked and all he saw was the problem. When Andrew looked, he saw the problem and he saw the possibility of what Jesus could do with this food in his hands. And so it wasn't that you know, Philip had no faith and Andrew had all the faith. That's not what it is at all. Philip, it seems he didn't have any faith, but it seems that Andrew, he didn't have, he wasn't full of faith, but he had a measure of faith. He had some level of faith. And when it comes to kingdom practices and kingdom math, I will say this, that some faith is always better than no faith. Some faith is always better than no faith. And so even in this situation with some of Jesus's closest followers, Jesus deals with them individually and he is bringing them along because we're going to understand this, that Philip may have failed his test. And I think it's so important we understand this. Philip may have failed that test, but it doesn't mean that he failed the class. Does that make sense? Jesus didn't see Philip fail the test and say, I'm done with you. Depart from me. You never knew me. You know, no, he didn't do that. He failed the test and Jesus just kept on bringing him along. The reality is is that when you and I go through tests, there are some tests we're going to soar through and we're going to, we're going to make A's and B's and it's going to be amazing. We're going to reap, you know, the goodness of all that. But then there's sometimes we're just going to fall flat on our face and it's going to be frustrating. We're going to be disappointed with ourselves and all these kind of things. And I'll even say there, there, there may be times where we disappoint the Lord, where we did not respond in a certain way that the Lord wanted us to respond. But we can never misunderstand failing a test for failing the class or failing the kingdom. Jesus is always and forever coming for us and he's always and forever maturing us and bringing us along because he is such a good father. So he deals with us individually. Number four, the miracle reveals that Jesus prefers order over chaos. Now you remember when Paul is 
writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14. And, you know, they're, they're a charismatic church because, again, we realize that there's not, there's, for the early church, there wasn't really a concept of, you know, a, a church that wasn't spirit you know, infused or, or empowered by the Spirit. All the churches of the early church were filled with the Spirit. And so Paul was dealing with uh, the church in Corinth who they were energized by the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit were in full operation, um, but there was a lack of order with, with the gifts of the Spirit. And so, you know, there'd be a lot of people praying in tongues and then somebody over here would, you know, maybe trying to heal somebody or pray for deliverance and demons casting out while the pastor is trying to, to teach from God's word. And over here, you got another message in tongues and somebody singing hymns in the back and all these kind of things. There's, there's utter chaos. And so Paul, he writes this letter, this letter to the church at Corinth and he brings some measure of correction to him. And so as he's explaining the proper order of how you should do church and kind of get things more into alignment, this is what Paul writes. He says, God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Okay, he's a God of orderliness. We see this all throughout scripture from, from the front to the back. We see um, in the beginning in, in Genesis, you remember God created the heavens and the earth and, and day by day, the Bible says that he would create this, the, the sun would come up, they would create this and then the sun would go down and the day would become night and the night would become day and that days would become months and months would become years and that seasons would transition. There is an orderliness to even creation itself. There's an orderliness. And then all throughout scripture, you see the Lord operating with instructions. With the Ark of Noah, we see very specific measurements and, and in order to do things in the building of the tabernacle and the temples. You again, you see the orderliness of God. Even in the book of Revelation, as God begins to pour out his wrath on all of humanity, you see an orderliness to it. It's almost, there are almost some times where it seems like the judgment of God are almost like dominoes that are falling on top of each other, like chain reactions, because they're so orderly. And so we know that God is a God of order. And so even in this moment here, as Jesus is feeding the multitudes, um, I'm sure with 5,000, I mean, imagine there are 5,000 men. The Bible doesn't, doesn't, there were obviously children there because, you know, Andrew brings over the little boy, but the Bible says there were 5,000 men. So there could have been some scholars estimate anywhere from 5, 10, 15, even 25,000 people. Can you imagine the moment? And, and even as Jesus is trying to bring order to this moment, it, I'm sure at some moments it feels like utter chaos. You've got thousands and thousands of people trying to figure out what they're going to eat, trying to figure out where they're going to go, where are we going to sleep tonight, what about our babies, all this kind of stuff. But Jesus brings order to the moment. In the Gospel of Mark, we find the same, um, the same event unfolded. And that's what I love about the differences of the Gospels. This um, uh, particular event is found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what I love about it is that you see the different perspectives. They're all telling the same story. They're just seeing that one guy is up on the mountain as he's looking down at the event. One guy's standing right next to Jesus as it all unfolds. And one guy is right there in the middle of the people as it unfolds. And so you see all these different perspectives of this miracle as it transpires. And Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus, he gets everyone's attention and he tells the disciples, he says, I need you to sit them down in groups and I need you to sit them in groups of 50 and groups of 100. And so in this moment, it's reminiscent of when Jethro comes to Moses, you remember, uh, in Exodus. And he says, Moses, he says, if you try to do all this, you're going to kill yourself if you try to make judgments and lead all these people by yourselves. He says, why don't you find some good and godly men and then break the people into groups of thousands and hundreds and fifties and twenty five, all this kind of stuff, and then give each man a group and, and delegate the responsibility. We see this kind of happening right here in John chapter 6. And so in this moment, I want you to notice the progression of events. Number one, what happens is that Jesus takes what is given to him. Right? Jesus sees the problem, and Jesus takes whatever is given to him. 
I'm not sure if the boy would have brought to Jesus like a dead cat or something like that, what Jesus would have said. But in the moment, Jesus takes what is given to him, which is a couple of fish and some pieces of bread. So he takes what's given to him. And in this moment, Jesus gives thanks for what's given to him. Notice there's not complaint. There's not an overanalyzation. There is a moment where Jesus takes what has been given and he gives thanks for that which has been given. The word that is used, it's the active form of the word Eucharist, which Eucharist is, is what you know, uh, many call the Lord's table or communion. And the word translated literally means thanksgiving. And so in this moment, Jesus has taken what's given and he's given thanks for it. But then Jesus also does something different. He blesses it. He asks God to bless this food. Once he's taken it, he's given thanks, he's blessed it. Then Jesus does something, again, reminiscent of Moses. Jesus begins to distribute the food to the disciples so that they can go and begin to um, feed the multitudes. And Jesus says, listen, let them take as much as they want. And so Jesus takes what's been given, he gives thanks, he blesses it, he distributes it, and it is used for his glory. And the interesting thing about this is not just for his glory, it's for the good of the people and for the glory of God. And when we look in scripture, we see Jesus oftentimes just simply use what people have given into God's hand. It, it, it's not miraculous. It's not anything special. Oftentimes, it's the very ordinary and the very mundane. We see David, and he goes, and he says, Lord, all I have to face this giant, they've given me all this armor. I don't want this armor. All I've got is this sling and the stone. And the Lord uses that because David has given it to the Lord to be used. Moses stands with uh, the, 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 the most powerful army on the face of the planet at his back, breathing down his neck, and he's leading millions of people, and they dead end at the Red Sea, and the Lord just simply uses a staff in the hand of Moses to part the waters of the Red Sea. Why? Because Moses gave to the Lord that which Moses had, and God blessed it. Jesus would even say this. He would say that the seed of his body, when it's given into the hands of the Father and goes into the earth, it is going to produce more fruit and many, many people are going to benefit from it. And the principle is simply this. When we give what we have and we put it into the hands of the Father, that he will not only use it, but he will bless it and it will bless other people. And so finally, in this progression of events, we see that Jesus makes sure that nothing is wasted. You notice he tells the disciples, he says, I want you to go, I want you to grab baskets and I want you to go to collect the leftovers. And the Bible says that there were 12 baskets left over, full baskets, 12 full baskets left over for the disciples, maybe even to have lunch the next day. Now I'm gonna tell you this, I am, um, I've just gotten into this thing where I love to, I got a smoker for Christmas, like a meat smoker, like it's kind of like a grill, but it's just smoke, it's a pellet smoker. And I gotta tell you, I used to hate cooking. I used to hate anything like that. But I'm gonna tell you what, I was a changed man once I started smoking meats. And uh, I'll tell you, it, it has done so much for my family. We've saved so much money because chicken is so cheap. You know how cheap chicken is? You can feed my whole family, which are like 42 people. You can feed my whole family for like eight bucks worth of chicken if you've got something to cook it on. And so we, uh, we, um, we smoke all the time. But what I'll do a lot of times is I'll cook a really big, like either a pork butt or a, a whole chicken something like that, a brisket or whatever. And what I'll do is I'll put it in containers so that we can eat on it throughout the week. But lo and behold, with, a, with an active family, we got so many things going on. Um, there are so many times where, you know, we just kind of neglect the leftovers and they end up going to waste and all that kind of stuff. And I feel so guilty because I feel so wasteful. 
But it's so interesting here that Jesus makes sure that nothing is wasted. And it reminded me of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 15, verse 58. He reminds his readers that nothing you do for the Lord is ever wasted. Nothing you do for the Lord is ever wasted. It's a principle that when God takes what you've given him, and he uses it for the good of people and for the glory of himself, he will make sure that it's never wasted. And here's the thing. All of us have done things for the Lord at times. We've done a work or we've given a gift or we've done something to, to better other people, to bring glory to God. We've done it in secret or we've done it in public. We've done it in a thousand different ways. And there are times, if we're not careful, where we will get so discouraged because we'll feel like, man, I never saw the fruit of that. The person never said thank you. I never saw the fruit of it in my life or their life. But we got to be reminded that, that even if we don't see it in this life, we will see it in the next life. Because nothing that we do for the Lord will ever, ever be wasted. Number five, this miracle reveals to us that Jesus is not limited in resources. There was such an overflow. Can you imagine being one of the disciples? They see five loaves of bread and they see two fish, which may be able to fill up one basket. Like the, the, the essence, like the beginning of their resources maybe would have filled up one basket. But now when everything's said and done and thousands and thousands of people have, he have eaten, they don't just have one basket that's filled. They have 12 baskets that's filled with leftovers for themselves. It's a reminder to us that the Father in heaven has no needs, that he does not operate on, on a thin margin, but that God in all that he does, he has the ability to work in exceeding abundance at all times and in all seasons. There is never a season of famine for the Lord. There's never a season of lack where he does not have. In the book of Psalms, um, chapter 50, the Lord is speaking to Israel, and he says this. He says, I do not need the bulls from your barn or the goats from your pens, for all the animals of the field are mine. He's saying, you don't, like, like, you don't have to bring me this stuff. I own all of it anyway. And then he says the, the famous line, he says this, because I own the cattle on a thousand hills. And what the Lord is saying in this moment is he's saying, look, I, I appreciate the offerings and I appreciate the sacrifices that you're making, but I need you to understand this. You're not bringing them because I need them. I own it all anyway. You're doing this because of love, or at least you should be doing this because of love. And so we realize that there is that God, because he is the source, he doesn't really need resources because he is the source. In him is everything. In his ability is all power. He has no lack and he is never short when it comes um, to resources. Number six, and finally, this miracle reveals to us that Jesus can work with whatever we give him. Now, I think it's so interesting when we start looking at how things transpired through this event. You realize with the boy that comes and, and Andrew kind of brings the boy to Jesus. This was pretty new for Andrew, so I'm sure that there was some level of hesitancy, like when I bring the boy to Jesus, is Jesus going to receive the boy kind of thing? But I'm sure after being with Jesus a year or so, that Andrew felt safe with it. But I'll tell you this, in that culture, children were not always celebrated. Children um, were, were oftentimes somewhat even marginalized to some degree. As a matter of fact, in the other three gospels, the boy's not even mentioned when it comes to this, the events of what happened in the feeding of the multitude, the boy's not even mentioned. 
The Bible just simply says that there just appeared, you know, some fishes and loaves. The reality is that the, the word that's even used for the boy was, was a word that's used for lower class citizens, for slaves, different things like that. But Jesus not only accepts the boy, but he uses the boy. The boy that most, even, even, even some of his disciples would not even remember that the boy was there. They wouldn't remember to record that the boy was there, much less his name or any, any way that he looked or what he was wearing. They would even forget. But John recalls that there was a boy that God not only accepted, but that God used to be a blessing to thousands and thousands of people. Beyond the boy, think about this. Jesus used fish, which fish were, you know, a, a hot commodity back, back in that day. Um, that was, you know, the, the meat of choice. A few years ago, I was in, I was in Israel. I have a photo I want to show you. I was in Israel, and um, we were on the Sea of Galilee, and we went to this one particular restaurant, and they had all these different, you know, a couple different meals that you could choose from. And one of them was fish from the Sea of Galilee. I think we have a photo of it. But as we sat down to eat the meal, I looked at the fish and I was like, this looks disgusting. You know what I mean? I was like not impressed whatsoever with the fish because I'm used to, you know, mahi-mahi or, you know, swordfish or whatever. Um, this, I don't even know if there's a name for this kind of fish that it was, but it was from the Sea of Galilee. So I thought to myself, man, I'm going to eat this thing. But, but let me just tell you this. This fish is probably, you know, some way down the line connected to the genealogy of the fish that the little boy brought to Jesus. It wasn't anything special. It wasn't an enormous, you know, blue marlin that they could cut up into a thousand different ways and distribute to the people. It was a small fish. It was two small fish that weren't very big, but because they were in the hands of Jesus, they could do exceedingly more than any person could have ever imagined. You think about the loaves, barley loaves, as a matter of fact, when you do a little bit of digging, you find that barley loaves, that's not even like a really good type of bread. I love bread. I'm telling you, I'm, uh, anytime we do like a fast or a Daniel fast, anything like that, my weakness isn't like chocolate or, you know, coffee or anything like that. All I want to eat is bread. I love bread. I love all kinds of different breads. Um, I'm just a huge fan of bread, as weird as that sounds. But when you start digging a little bit and you find out that Jesus is receiving these barley loaves of bread, what you begin to realize is that barley loaves are not like a quality type of bread. As a matter of fact, one commentator said that, that barley bread was only fit for beasts and the poor. It was, it was a bread that was fit for animals to eat. So it wasn't even a dense or a high quality bread, but because it was in the hands of Jesus, he used it well. And this is the principle that God oftentimes chooses to use the least in order to accomplish the most at times. It is the same principle with our tithe, that God can bless and use 90% far more than he can use 100%. And you say, well, that doesn't make sense. It's the kingdom math. It doesn't make sense because it all operates in a spirit of faith. And so you have this principle at play where all these really lowly things and, and the small amount and small status, all these small things, all of a sudden they're huge in the eyes of these thousands and thousands of people simply because they're put into the hands of Jesus. You think about the mother. We never hear about the mama, right? We hear about the little boy and Andrew. We never hear about the mama who made the lunch, for the little boy, you know, the little boy's running out. He's like, oh, mama, I got to go see the prophet. She, no, no, whoop, get your lunch. I can't tell you how many times I've had to stop my kids on the way to the car because they forgot their lunch. I can imagine this woman, the boy's running, I'm going to see the prophet. Get your lunch. The pro lunch. So the little boy goes back to get his lunch and he goes out. This mama has no idea that when she's making this lunch for this little boy, she's really making lunch for Jesus. 
and about 15,000 of his friends. She is doing her dutiful, faithful service of being a mother, providing for her boy's needs, her family's needs. She's a mom that I'm sure at times, like all of us, has sat and wondered about her purpose, no idea where her life is leading, just kind of going through the mundaneness of life. But I think this is why Paul reminds us in the book of Colossians chapter 3, he says this. He says, work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. So what Paul's saying, he's saying, listen, when you go about your everyday work, when you sit at your desk and you're punching in numbers, don't punch in numbers for your boss. Punch in numbers as if you're working for the Lord, right? He's saying, listen, when you go and you wait those tables and you bust those tables and you serve those customers, don't serve those customers because you're serving those customers. Serve those customers because you're serving Jesus. And when you do that and you remember that everything I do is it may be for people, but ultimately it's not for people. It may be for people, but ultimately it's for God himself. And I wonder, I just got to wonder, going off script here, I just got to wonder if this mom ever just kind of felt like, you know, not really sure where life is going, not really sure if there's much purpose in making this sandwich, but you know what? I'm a Jew and I serve Jehovah God and I just need to be faithful to do what I know what I used to do. I'm making this lunch for my boy, but I'm really making this lunch as unto the Lord. And unbeknownst to her, it actually would end up in the hands of the Lord. And I wonder how many people, I wonder how many people in an incredible church like ours, I wonder how many people sit out there and they think the same thing as this lady. They think, man, I, I just really don't have a lot to offer. I don't know where this is going. I, I don't feel a ton of purpose in my life. I wonder how many people sit day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, year in, year out, and they wrestle in their mind with all these things when all the time in Scripture we see verses like in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, where Peter writes this. He says, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. And I know there are so many people, they say, well, I have a gift, I know, but it's not, it's not like this gift. Or I know, you know, coming out of youth ministry for, you know, 17 or 18 years, I've, so, many, so many people, they say, man, I'm just so young. I feel like I don't have enough credibility. But then, you know, I start serving with adults. And then you've got adults saying, man, I'm just so old. I can't do da-da-da-da-da and everything in between. But at the end of the day, we've got to wrestle with the idea and, and, and the truth of Scripture that regardless of how young you are, regardless of how old you are, regardless of how much influence or credibility you may feel like you have, God has given you a gift, at least one gift, from his great variety of spiritual gifts, and we are accountable to use those gifts so that we serve others well. And I'm so thankful for so many people who volunteer at a, at a church like this, a spiritual family like this. I think about the, the guys who were recording this video so that you can watch this on a Wednesday night. I'm so grateful to God that they are using their gifts so that you can be served in such a way. People, you know, there are so many at a church like this who serve behind the scenes and nobody would ever see, you know, some of our greeters and our ushers, our security, our watchmen, um, you know, AV people, life group leaders, just anything and everything in between. They may not get a lot of stage time, but they are the people who are advancing the kingdom of God and advancing the moving of the spirit here at this church simply because of this, not because they are anything special necessarily, not because their gifts are off the chart or, or you know, 
anything like that. It's simply because they have a gift. They say, Lord, you've given me this gift. I'm putting it in your hands. I'm letting you use this gift and I'm letting you use me and God does something amazing. And let me just say this to all my friends out out there who may be a little bit older in life. Um, I have such tremendous respect for our elders. I truly do. I'm infatuated with every generation. I just think that every generation needs to be honored, you know, no matter how young or how old they are. But let me just say this to our older generation. If you're not dead, you're not done. And you may not be able to do what you could have done 25 or 30 years ago, but God has a call on your life for today. And what that call may look like, it may not be what you used to do, but what it may be is it may mean that you are now a voice of wisdom and you are a mentor to younger men and women or to families or to uh, families that are in special situations that you have expertise or experience in. God wants to use every person that are called by his name as long as they are alive on this earth. And I want to encourage you with that. In the end, this is what it all boils down to. And this is true for for anything in life. What we have been given and how it is used all depends on whose hands it's put in, right? So if I had a basketball here and you put that basketball in my hand, and I played the basketball and I signed the basketball and all this kind of stuff. When it's in my hand, even if I signed it, spit on it, kissed it, whatever I do, sweat all over it, even if I do that, that basketball is still going to be worth the same amount it was as when I bought it at Walmart, right? But if I take that same basketball and I put it in the hands of LeBron James or Steph Curry or one of those guys, and they play around, they play a game with it or, you know, they, they, they sweat on it and they sign it, all this stuff. All of a sudden now, that thing that was in my hand didn't mean a whole lot. Now, all of a sudden, it means a whole lot more. If you put a scalpel in Pastor Justin's hand and you need a critical surgical procedure done, that scalpel ain't going to mean a lot in his hand. I love you so much, Pastor Justin. It's just not going to mean a lot. Okay, it, well, it may mean death, certain death, okay, but it's not going to mean much more than that. But if you take that same scalpel and you put it in the hands of a skilled surgeon, it's going to mean the difference between life and death. It all depends on whose hand it's in. And so the point that I'm really trying to make as we wrap all of this up is I'm simply trying to say this, this miracle reveals so much about God's character and how he feels about us and how he uses us. But the question I really want to narrow down on for for all of us tonight is simply this. With what we have, does it remain in our hands or does it remain in the Lord's hands? Have we taken our finances and truly entrusted them to the Lord? Have we taken our spiritual giftings and entrusted them to the Lord? Have we taken our relationships? Have we given them over to God? Or have we kept our hands on all these things saying, I can, or I will, or I will not, or I refuse to? Have we controlled what we have? Or have we said, Lord, this means so much in my hands, but it is so much more useful in your hands. Because I'm going to tell you this, if you will simply let God take you into his hands, if you will let the Lord bless you, if even at times you will let the Lord break you just as he did with the bread, if you will let the Lord use you for his purposes, it will not only be for your good and the good of others, but it will be for the glory of God and you will see fruit from it and not only fruit, but reward. Amen. So tonight I want to pray for you as we go. Look so forward to being back here with you next week as we continue our series, Miracles and Meaning. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. 
thank you that you are so faithful and that you are so true. I thank you, Lord, for your word. And I thank you, Lord, that you are stirring something in the hearts of your people. I really believe that you're stirring something fresh and new in the hearts of your people. And I believe, Lord, that there is about to see not just here at Christian Life, but across the kingdom. We're about to just see an, uh, just an infusion of people who begin to give things to the Lord. And we're going to begin to see the Spirit work in a way that we've never seen, not because he's been unable, but maybe sometimes because we as his bride have been unwilling just to release things into his hands. So I pray tonight in the name of Jesus that you'll help me, that you'll help all my brothers and sisters to do that and to walk in obedience. We bless you. We love you in the name of Jesus. Amen, amen, and amen.